Let's pray. No, let's not pray. Let's start. Uh, <laughs> we'll pray at the end, actually. Um, if, uh, if you're new here today, I want to say especially uh, warm welcome to you. Uh, good on you for coming. I, I remember going to my first EU meeting. Uh, it was an interesting experience, uh, kind of up and down, um, and uh, arriving in a bunch of, uh, you know, a lecture theatre with a bunch of other people. Uh, you've done well. I hope today will be valuable. Um, in a sense, if you're inquiring, I thought that's why I didn't want to pray at the start, because I thought I won't commit you to that. We'll pray at the end and see uh, if you can join in the prayer then, which is that whatever we've looked at today would be useful to you. So that's that, hence that decision, which provokes some commentary from others. But there you go. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie T2, uh, Terminator 2. It's one of those... Uh, Great 80s movies. I grew up in the 80s and all good music and movies were produced then. As you know, that's why there's so many retro dance clubs because there's nothing worth dancing to now. Uh, T2 is one of those time travel movies and so has all sorts of interesting possibilities. Uh, In the first half of the movie, the heroine is on the defensive, uh, simply trying to escape the bad guys. Um, But then it switches in an amazing scene. This is a scene uh, which is a vision of the future. Uh, An apocalyptic vision or dream, not uh, of uh, good things, but in fact of destruction. And uh, if you, hands up if you've seen the movie. Okay, a few of you. Do you remember the scene where she's at the playground and it's Sarah Connor uh, who had her whole own series uh, until recently uh, because it wasn't as good as the movie because nothing much is. And uh, she's standing there at the playground, there's this wire fence and it slows down, it's all very cutesy, there are kids playing up and down, and there are mums looking exhausted because they haven't slept for the last three years, um, and prams, and, and seesaws, and swings, and all this kind of stuff, and then BAM! There's the nuclear holocaust. It's the machines, actually, the computers launch all the nuclear bombs. Uh, we always knew you computer scientists were a bunch of ratbags, but there you are. Uh, and they destroy us all, and this nuclear wind comes across um, the playground and it just smashes the kids and just takes them away. They're, she herself is shredded. So all her skin and flesh is just swept off her and what's left on the, on the clinging to the, um, the fence is her, is her skeleton. And then it pans... I mean, it's good stuff. They had special effects then too. And they, they, it pans back and you see this, this blast wave going across a city as... as, as apartment after apartment, block after block, building after building are just flattened one through another. And, and, and then she wakes up because it's been a dream, a vision that she's had. And from then on, everything changes. Instead of being on the defensive, on the run, on the back foot, from then on, she becomes not the hunted, but the hunter. She, she seeks to intervene from that moment. Every fibre of her being is gripped and directed and responding to this vision of the future. It's not that uncommon, actually, for us to be future-oriented. Um, you, you may have a vision of the future, holding hands with that special him or her, walking down a beach on a romantic sunset summer evening. That's your vision for the... No, not like that, thank you. That, that, that's your vision for the future... And so you act in the present. You suck up every ounce of your courage, every milligram of courage and strength that you have and you 
talk to his or her friends and see if they're interested in talking to them on your behalf and finding out whether their people can talk to your people. You have a vision for the future. You're striding the corridors of power in a city high-rise building working for an expensive firm. And so you knuckle down to your arts degree, preparing yourself for your important role as the photocopy guy. I just thought it was better to know now than be disappointed then, you know, you art students. You might as well understand it. It's better than saying, will you have fries with that? It's worth asking yourself to pick the question, isn't it? What, what is your vision for the future? I mean, not just intermediate kind of visions like, uh, you know, finding someone or a job or something like that, but, but what actually is your vision for your future? Do you have any vision? Or, or do, you, do you really think that the future, what the future holds is just extinction? You just get zotted out? That's it. That's the game, that's game over. That everything about your life, everything you've contributed, everything you've done and said and thought will just be extinguished. That ultimately it's all meaningless, valueless, irrelevant and unimportant. That, that even if you've helped some other people, they'll just get extinguished as well. And that in fact, you're a nihilist. You've got nothing. There is nothing. In which case you might as well party as hard as you can because your head's in the sand. You haven't faced the reality, if you think there is any meaning or substance to life, and just kind of eat, drink and be merry, sex, drugs, rock and roll, go for it. Is that really what you think the future holds? Because if that's your vision of the future, right, then that will drive you in the present. There's no point pretending. Um, it's a vision of the future that John the Apostle uh, sees, as he puts it, given to him by God, and he writes it down in what we call the book of Revelation. Uh, we've been working our way through it over the last couple of weeks and it is very bizarre. It makes science fiction, which is our kind of genre version of the sort of thing that we see in Revelation, it makes science fiction look tame. We've got dragons, we've got beasts, we've got locust plagues that look like Norse soldiers, we've got a bloke with a big sword coming out of his mouth. You, you, there's, there's nothing to stretch your imagination like the book of Revelation. And two principles have guided us as we've worked our way through this material over these last uh, three weeks. We've said that the use of the language, the use of this highly metaphorical, highly evocative, deeply symbolic language is actually really important. Not because there really are beasts and dragons and people with swords coming out of their mouths. Those are pictures that refer to real things, space, time, ordinary Concrete things, but they use pictures, dramatic, evocative, powerful, imaginative pictures, in order to convey the full spiritual significance of those ordinary things. Perhaps the best example of this is the death of Jesus on the cross. Uh, there were no doubt uh, dozens and dozens of people who watched Jesus die on the cross. They'd watched hundreds of others. The Romans were particularly good at killing people especially by execution on a cross, they knew exactly what they were doing and they slaughtered thousands of Jews in, in that manner. And there's, there's just another bunch of three, there's probably five down the hill over there and another few over there and there's Jesus in the middle of three and he dies on the cross and it's just another Jew getting slaughtered. They have it happen to them quite often. Is that right? John says, no way. That moment, that that space-time reality of this man stopping breathing on the cross is nothing less than the great dragon being fought in heaven and thrown down to earth. A symbolic, a pictorial way of describing the defeat 
of evil, the moment when God takes on evil, when God actually takes on and defeats evil by absorbing it in his own person, the Lord Jesus Christ, taking on sin and evil, the worst that that could be thrown at him, taking it on and responding by only absorbing it and and thereby actually making forgiveness possible for other people. You you see the point? A, A great picture language is used to try and convey something of the full significance of what you might otherwise miss. Another Jew dying on a cross. No, don't miss it. And so you see what the book of Revelation uh, is like is another great 80s movie, 90s, The Matrix, where Neo, Keanu Reeves, and I, I, did I mention that people often say I look like Keanu? <laughs> I don't argue. I just, I just trust their judgement, but not yours apparently. <laughs> Keanu, uh, uh, Neo goes and he's invited by Morpheus to, to take the red pill. That is, he's invited by Morpheus to see reality for what it is. To, to get his head out of the sand, to stop living in the fantasy land of the, well in the, the case of the movie, of the, the electrical signals that are being fed by the computers. Computers again, just by the way. They're bad things. <laughs> Except the ones that made that video. They were good computers. But, but the computers are just feeding us signals, signals, the workaday world. We just like to go on thinking that all is well, that life's about this kind of thing, that you just eat lots of chocolate and have fun and meet someone and have kids and grow old and die. and That's all there is to it because that's how life is. And, and, and Revelation is saying, take the red pill. Stop living in a fantasy land. Stop pretending that God isn't the most significant reality in your life. Stop, stop pretending that you don't have a relationship with God. Of course you have a relationship with God. He gives you everything you have. The next breath you take is his gift. If he were to withdraw his grace from you, you would just collapse in a kind of really disgusting sludge. Stop living a fantasy life. Take the red pill, says John. Read this book and understand what is true and real about life. True and real about yourself. Understand what is true and real about God and his purposes. And that's what we're here to do today. We've had three doses of the red pill. I've been very challenged and thrown about, a bit confused, a bit kind of disoriented as I've read again Revelation and it's, it's straightened my head out. And I hope it's, uh, if you've been here for the last few weeks, it's, it's had that sort of effect on you as well. Well, today we come to the end of the book. The completion of God's purposes and there is more bizarre imagery. Uh, check this out, 21 verse 9, Then, and if you have a Bible, now's a good time to get it out. Chapter 21, verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last seven plagues, if you don't know what that's about, then read chapter 16, uh, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now again, every time you see a, a person or a thing or an object, imagery in the book of Revelation, think literary, not literal. This is not about human beings marrying sheep. Um. That would be an error. The lamb refers to Jesus and that's because he was identified early on in his public life as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world by John the baptizer. And, and the bride, well, that's the church. That's those for whom he gave himself up and sacrificed himself. And then in the spirit he carried me away to a great high mountain. Great high mountains are where often... 
God reveals his ultimate purposes to people. In the Old Testament, this happened quite a lot. Uh, the prophet Isaiah spoke of a high mountain, and especially the prophet Ezekiel spoke of the point of a high mountain at which he saw the plan and purpose of God. And now John is taken again with that kind of Old Testament uh, imagery up to a high mountain, and he sees what God is going to do. He showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. This is the weirdest wedding you've ever been to. There, I go to lots of weddings. I take lots, actually. And uh, I've, you often see the bloke there. There he is, standing lonely, worried, uncertain. Will she turn up? Won't she turn up? Yes, she's turned up. Uh, never have I seen coming down out of heaven a bride, the city Jerusalem. Boom! I don't know how to fit it in the church, really, but there you go. Um, of course, it is a bizarre city. Chapter 21, verse 11. It has the glory of God and a radiance like a very rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It has a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates are inscribed the names of the 12 tribes of the Israelites. On the east, three gates, the north, three gates, the south, three gates and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city has 12 foundations and on them are the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Uh, It's the features of the city which tell you what the city is to represent. The city represents a group of people. How do you know that? Because its walls are the 12 tribes of Israel. Its foundations are the 12 apostles of Christ. This is God's people, his whole complete people, his old covenant people and his new covenant people. That's what the city represents. That's saying the same thing as the 144,000 virgin men. Remember the 144,000 virgin men? That's everyone who trusts in Jesus, who's part of God's people. And that's what this city is. Now the angel then starts to measure it. Chapter 21, verse 15. The angel who talked to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square. Its length and width and height are equal. Sorry, uh, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, uh, literally 12,000 stadia. 12,000 stadia, or in my translation, 1,500 miles, because it was written, this translation was done in America. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which the angel was using. Measuring something is an image which depicts the completeness and security of that thing. Every inch of it known to God, every inch of it guarded by God. And here the city, the, the people of God are measured, known, guarded, especially their walls, unlike, of course, the ancient city, the physical city of Jerusalem, whose walls were constantly trashed by invaders, the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Seleucids and the Romans and so on. Now, notice that the geometry of the city is is four square, four equal sides. In fact, it's not just four square, it's a cube. Now, if we knew our Old Testaments as well as the Apostle John knew his Old Testament, we would know that the the Holy of Holies, that kind of utterly central thing, in fact, Raiders of the Lost Ark was on last night. Did anyone? Another great 80s movie. Raiders of the Lost Ark with Harrison Ford. And it's it's about the Ark of the Covenant, which in the um, history of Israel was kind of placed in this particular room inside the temple in Jerusalem, the Holy of Holies. Just take a random guess as to what shape the Holy of Holies had. Sphere? No. 
cylinder, not even close. It was a cube. And so this, this city, which represents God's people, is, is cubed. It's a monster cube. Check this out. It's 2,400 kilometres wide. So that's here, what, nearly to Alice Springs. And then it's from Alice Springs nearly to Darwin. That's the size of the city. And that's only one floor because it's 2,400 kilometres tall as well. So, well, and it, was, well, it doesn't work. It's got walls, 2,400 kilometres. Just, just think, that's a long way to the moon, right? All the way up. Its walls are 70 metres thick, which if you're two and a half kilometres high, is not very thick at all. In fact, it won't work. It'll just fall down. But you can do that with apocalyptic, can't you? Yes. The jewellery which adorns the foundations is described in great detail. Notice jasper, sapphire, agate, emerald and so on. This city is utterly glorious. Everything which is the most common thing now, sorry, everything which is the most precious thing now is the most common thing then. Uh, sometimes you see this in movies that some really, really up himself American businessman will take out because they still use paper money in America where we just have plastic stuff, will take out a, a, a hundred or maybe even a thousand dollar bill, get out a big cigar and, and, and light, light the thousand dollar bill and, and then light his cigar with the thousand dollar bill just to show that thousand dollar bills are nothing to him and he can just burn them like matchsticks and be a complete jerk. That's what this is saying, you see. That's what this is saying, that the most precious things now are common as mud then. And then the finale, verse 21, and the twelve gates are the twelve pearls. Each of the gates is a single pearl. The street of the city is pure gold, transparent as glass. Um, here's the pearly gates, just by the way. You've heard of, you know, all those jokes with St Peter and all that kind of stuff? Well, here they are. Now, if the, if the wall is 2,400 kilometres high, the gate might be, say, only a mere 1,000 kilometres high. That's a big oyster. But you can do that with apocalyptic. And the streets, you know what you, know what you did with streets in the ancient days, in the first century, what happened to streets? What streets were there for was to get crapped on by donkeys and sheep and other stuff. Okay, that, that's what streets get done to them, they just get crapped on. And here's what gold is good for when God fulfills his purposes for us. Gold is so... Nothing. But you just crap on it. It's just there to be walked on. It's a fabulous, powerful image, isn't it? Not, not of a place, but of a people, of a community. It's saying this is the destiny for the church. This is the destiny for God's people. This is the future for Christians. The church, that same church, which if you believe the papers is some outmoded, outdated, irrelevant, stuck in the past, narrow-minded, bigoted, hateful, blah, 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 just goes on and on and on. God says, yeah, I'll show you where the church is heading. I'll tell you where Christians are going. I'll show you what they are really. 
They are this unspeakably precious. Unspeakably precious. Now, we we go on and and hear more about this people, you see, because it includes uh, all nations and tribes and peoples and languages as has been the concern throughout the whole of Revelation. It's not not a, a narrow, small concern. The focus, the field of vision for John is, is everyone in the whole world. And there's a sense in which this city cor- corresponds to the fulfilment of all human endeavour. Look at chapter 21, verse 24. The nations will walk by its light, that is by God's light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. People will bring into it the glory and the honour of the nations But nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The kings of the earth bring their glory and honour. I think what this is trying to kind of fire up our imaginations to see is that this future that God has, this vision that John sees, has all the best of human culture and achievement in it of art and and literature and technology and science and even IT, all of it, all of it will find its way into the age to come. Recognised as having been at its best, actually a reflection of the glory of God. You can can see what this does to dignify all that we do now in cultural and scientific endeavour. That it too has a future. That the, the future which God has is, is the fulfilment of this life. I'll come back and say that a little more about that in the end. But notice, notice that not all are included in this city. Chapter 22, verse 12. See, I am coming soon. My reward is with me to repay according to everyone's work. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they will have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and fornicators and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. It's the same story that John has been telling all along. Uh, It is to those who conquer, it's to those who keep Jesus at the centre of their lives, those who follow him no matter what the cost and do not compromise or bail on him, they will have a place in God's future. But, and it is a terrifying but, the doors are shut to the unclean and the impure, those who do falsehood and abominations, that is, those who reject the reality and centrality of God in their lives. And friends, you, you, you may not be a Christian here this afternoon, and if that's the case, I want to suggest that these are some of the most important words that you can ever hear. Apart from Christ, or as John puts it, apart from those who have washed their robes, does that mean you have to be a robe wearer to be a Christian? No, it's a metaphor. If if you've not been made pure in God's sight through the death of Jesus for you, that's what he's saying, then you have no place in God's future. And John's saying, take the red pill. See it for what it is. What, 90, 80, 90% of people believe in God in this, in this city? You just do a survey, we do them time and time again. 80 or 90% of people believe in God 
and think they're absolutely assured about what they call going to heaven. It's a pure fantasy. It, it, it is as stupid as that guy in the Matrix who says, who tries to kill Neo. Remember, he sort of unplugs him and all this kind of stuff because he prefers the signals from the computer. He just wants to live the fantasy life. He likes the sand in his nostrils as he sticks his head down. And John is saying, don't do it. If you've not put your trust in Jesus, if, you've not, if you're not a straightforward, unambiguous Christian person, then wake up. See what is true and real. Take the red pill because there is no future for you in God's purpose other than pain, dreadful loss. Will you please see it? Will you, will you at least take it seriously enough to investigate? It, it's just it's madness, isn't it, to think that you could hear this word of... But frankly, the only person that ever knows about these things. What do you know about life after death? Diddly squat. How could you possibly? But Jesus, he's been there. He's the one who's going to tell you what's true about these things, not your fantasies. And and he's given this vision to John to say, wake up, take the red pill, see what is true. We just, our culture is so Christianized, we just think, yeah, 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 we're in a, you know, we just all go to heaven. It's not right. Take it seriously enough, I'm urging you, please, at least to investigate. On the communication card, just write down, I'd like to find out some more about this. It'll cost you precisely a couple of hours. It may be the most important thing you ever do. You'd be, you'd be a fool not to do it, wouldn't you, honestly? You need to know. And the thought that somehow, just because everyone else thinks that heaven is where we all end up, that that somehow makes it true, that's madness. John says, take the red pill. Because it doesn't have to be that way. The, the gracious, loving, I mean, it's not quite right, desperate invitation of God to you, not just invitation, command of God to you, as your creator and sustainer is, come home. Come back to me. And don't end up outside the city. It's bad out there. It's full of, well, actually, I'll tell you what it's full of. It's full of the absence of God. You see, the, the climax of this picture is, is the incredible intensity of the presence of God. Pick it up, say, in chapter 21, verse 22. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and so on. There's no temple. It's quite remarkable for a, a religious vision to have no temple. Temples are because that's where God is. God's in the temple, but he's quite, not quite everywhere else in the same way that he's in the temple. But you can see why there's no need for a temple, because God is immediately present everywhere here in this vision. There's no need for light because God is immediately present as the light of people's lives. And because God is immediately present, therefore every need of these people is met. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is a tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. Again, not surprising, 12 kinds on one side, 12 kinds on the other side, the two lots of 12 we've seen it lots of times. Producing its fruit each month and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. 
You see how inclusive, how glorious this picture is, the presence of God, and so utter fulfilment, utter provision, the water of life, the tree of life, the healing of the nations. A little earlier on, God is described as wiping every tear away from the eyes of his people. Listen to this, chapter 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away. If you don't get the power of that imagery, it's because you just live such a, well, we all do, don't we? Such pampered lives. For us, Mourning and crying and pain are when something really, really super tragic happens, like you you get a credit. Your life consists of you wander home today, it's a bit cold, so you put on one of your 28 jumpers or jackets or because you're cold, that's how it is. And then everyone's got 28 jackets to just put on. You go home and you, you walk in the door and the door's, it's secure because that's how the, our world is. And you, you put the light switch on because it, that's where electricity comes from, isn't it? Light switches. And then you go to the, the tap and you turn the tap and water comes out of the tap and you go to the fridge because you're hungry. And what you do when you're hungry is you eat because that's what everyone does. And there's food in the fridge. It gets there. Um, they're called parents, actually, who put the food there. And, and, and then you might drive somewhere tonight because... You have a car and you have petrol and you have money to make it all. That's what life is like, is it? Only for a tiny fraction of the world. The developed world is how many countries, do you know? 20-something? We try and make it sound nice, right? The developing world. The completely screwed world because we're developed. 180 countries. I tell you what, they know about mourning and crying and pain and death. They hear a promise like this, people who actually know these things with with a reality that is unavoidable and and they hear a promise like this and know its value and power. Actually, you will know it. Uh, Death will get you. It'll get you indirectly when the people you love start dying and it'll get you directly as well. We, we do everything we can possibly in our culture to pretend that that's not the case. It's just another big bucket of sand we stick our heads in. But it will get us, regardless of all the pampering we give ourselves, it will get us. And this is the promise that God will make everything right. That death will be no more. That mourning and crying and pain will be no more. That he will wipe the tear away from your eyes. I've, I've got uh, two daughters. One of them is a fairly sort of feisty and emotional daughter. Uh, sometimes girls can be like that. And um, she, she occasionally cries. And when she comes out of her room after she's done her crying, she's still got these sort of tears still. And, and I have a chance to just to wipe the tear away. It's just, it is such a gorgeous moment. I hope to do it for at least 30 or 40 more years. <laughs> I might have to let go, but there you It's just a moment of connection and beauty. And God says, he will do that to you. He will do it for you. He will wipe away the tears from your eyes. There will be no mourning because there will be nothing to mourn over anymore. That is the future God has for you.
And the question I have for you today is, will you see it? Will you see it? Will you see it for what it is? Don't pretend that it's something sort of foppish, something weak and wussy. We Christians, I don't think, have helped in doing this. We often talk about going to heaven and, and it's because we've spoken badly that we have such stupid portrayals of this vision that you see in The Simpsons of people floating around on clouds with harps singing hymns with sprouted wings and all this kind of stuff. We've helped that and it's, it's our fault and, and I'm sorry because it's a, it's, a, it's a terrible betrayal. It's a gross disservice that we've done to our culture to, to so degrade what is a, a magnificent vision with something as feeble and pathetic as that. This is, you see, the fulfilment, not the negation or destruction of our present life. It, it is the, the greatest fulfilment and flourishing and, and flowering of, of human beings and of, of earthly life that there is. The image of the Bible is not that we don't go to heaven. I'm on a bit of a campaign to eradicate the idea that we go to heaven. You don't go to heaven. Never ever again are you ever permitted upon pain of annoying me that you can say you go to heaven. What happens in this story? What is the? This is not going to heaven. This is heaven coming to us. It's all the difference in the world, isn't it? We don't escape and go to heaven somewhere. No, God created his creation. He loves it. He's committed to it. He's going to fix it up and he's coming back. Don't make me come down there. Ah, I'm coming down. And with the sheer glory of his own immediate presence, all that is bad and wrong and broken and fragile, everything that is evil and dirty and perverted, it will be cleansed. And life will be lived, real earthly life with a body and stones and stuff. Earthly life. And all the glory of the nations, right? It will be lived the way it was meant to be. That is the vision that Jesus gives to John. And really, it's just a question of will you actually bother to take it seriously? It is a massively intellectually satisfying vision. Behind this is a, a whole world view of the dignity of creation given to it by a creator who creates with love and purpose and who refuses to give up on it. Behind this is a, an understanding of the problem of suffering and evil in the world which is not macabre and cruel like a doctrine of karma. You know the idea of karma that somehow what you, if you do something that you'll get justice sometime, if not in this life, in the next life? Monstrous doctrine. Monstrous. Because you've got to take the other side of it too, which is if anything goes wrong with you now, that's because you deserve it. You're just getting something back from what you did in a former life. I have a a friend who has uh, their fourth child uh, born very, very severely Down syndrome. Um, The doctrine of karma says to my friends, you deserve it. The doctrine of karma says to little Gabby, good. Good, you, you ought to be this way. In fact, the doctrine of karma says uh, we're not going to help you because if we help you, then we're interfering with the great law of karma. You see what a perverse, appalling doctrine karma is, whereas, whereas the Christian doctrine is no, 
God will finish with evil. It will be destroyed. There will be no more mourning, no more death, no more tears. It will be gone because it doesn't belong here. Massively intellectually satisfying. And I'm saying take this seriously enough at least to investigate for a couple of hours. You'd, you'd rob yourself if you don't. On the other hand, if you're a Christian person and you've been with this series, then I hope that you get one. I mean, this, what John is saying is really, he could have just said it in three words actually. It would have been shorter, easier to understand, less effective perhaps. Hang in there. Nothing is worth it to miss out on this. Nothing is worth it. No goal or dream that you have that would take you away from Christ. Nothing, no relationship, no sin. Nothing is worth it. Jesus put it really subtly. If your eye causes you to sin, grab it and take it out and throw it away because it's better to enter eternal life half blind than to go to hell with both eyes open. It's the same message. Nothing is worth it to miss out on this. And so take a stock. Do a bit of a stock take in your Christian life. Just reflect. Are there areas of your life that you're just frankly saying no to God? Uh Uh-uh. Sex, that's out of bounds. I, I, I want and I will have my sex the way I want it. Money, I'm dealing with money. I'm not interested in generosity. Money's hard to come by. I mean, actually, after all, I'm only one of the wealthiest 1% in all of human history, but it's hard to come by. Uh, Forgiveness, I don't forgive people. I'm not that kind of person. Reconciliation, I don't do reconciliation. If there's some area of your life that you're holding out from Jesus, it's it's a little spiritual cancer, actually. You, you allow that to stay there and stay there unchecked and it will eat away at you and it will grow and multiply and it will take you over. John says, nothing, nothing is worth it because God has a future. He's not given up on his world. He's raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth and he will finish the job. Are you hanging there? Now perhaps we'll pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we uh, praise you as the living and true Lord and pray that you would so uh, open the eyes of our hearts to see this vision. Lord, have mercy on us. Uh, We pray that you would do such a work in our lives that we would be there on that last day. Your glory.